This is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Bertle. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, shortages in personal protective equipment, or PPE, for medical professionals has been an ongoing and very dire issue. Two key types of PPE in desperate need are face shields and surgical masks. To mitigate this shortage, educators, makers, and everyday people have been sewing, laser cutting, and 3D printing PPE and then donating them to medical professionals, neighbors, friends, and family members. In this new podcast series, we'll be talking to the amazing people volunteering their time, materials, and expertise to create and donate PPE. All right, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, returning to the podcast, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I guess just really before we dive into you know this whole story and this whole situation, um, can you just remind people like who you are and what, what you do um, in normal times before all of this? Yeah, normal times. So nor- yeah, I'm uh, Jeff Solon, and uh, normal, normal me is a, a computer science teacher at uh, Lane Tech college prep high school in Chicago. It's a part of Chicago public schools. And, um, I also starting about six years ago, started, uh, getting more involved with making and, uh, maker spaces and learning about that kind of stuff. And, um, to fast forward quite a bit, uh, ended up building, designing and building a about 4,000 square foot lab at the school. It's a, it's a really big old technical school, uh, built in the thirties. And uh, my room used to actually be a foundry, so it's a, it's a big space. Um, and I built a, uh, a makerspace there and wrote curriculum and teach courses uh, on, on that kind of stuff. Um, and I also do some still uh, robotics coaching for competition robotics teams for high school, but I'm less involved with that now that my, my lab has become um, kind of a, a bigger time, time suck. So. Um, sure. But yeah, so I teach, I've been teaching computer science for about 18 years uh, and gradually started to want to bring more hands-on problem solving to my, to my computer science um, work. So that's kind of a roundabout way of how I got involved with digital fabrication and other things like that. Awesome. And so then the world kind of falls apart and you started making PPE specifically like face shields. Um, so how did that start? I mean, uh, how did you have the idea? What... Um, kind of hurled you forward as you were looking at starting to do this? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a convoluted story, but it, it really has sort of three, three prongs when I step back and look at it. Um, back at the, I think it was a few weeks ago, at least, maybe, maybe a little over three weeks ago, um, I had seen an article online about people using 3D printers to 3D print face shields. Um, by printing the top bracket and then attaching basically like a, um, like a transparency or portfolio cover to it, some elastic to go around the back. And, um, my first thought was, um, well, first thought was that's awesome. Um, it hadn't even, I didn't, I had to look up what PPE meant. I mean, I hadn't, I didn't even know the acronym. Now I use the acronym about 4,000 times a day, but it's, um, but I didn't know what, I didn't even know what that was. Um, and, uh, 
So I thought, well, I've got this really cool lab um, at Lane Tech, and it's got a bunch of resources in it, um, not just 3D printers, but laser cutters and other tools. And um, it's sitting there dormant, and it's not helping anybody at all. And so I quickly fired off an email to the administration at my school, who I'm, I'm, I work closely with on stuff, and we have a, a great relationship. They've been very supportive of a lot of what we've been doing. Um, and said, hey, can we get access back into the lab or can I get access back into the lab and maybe we can activate all these dormant resources to help help people. Um, and so thanks to my principal, he, he really moved up the food chain very quickly. He was um, all on board. And within a couple of days, we had a, a call together with uh, some top um, legal people at Chicago Public Schools, um, some people from the office uh, offices of uh, student health and wellness, um, my principal and myself, and uh, and we started to put together a plan to to uh, to try and get this lab activated and, and become a pilot maybe for for involvement uh, with other Chicago Public Schools, and uh, some members on our little group um, worked uh, to get some money together through. Uh, the Children First Fund, um, which is sort of a um, a portal of grant money um, coming in through Chicago Public Schools, and mm-hmm. um, started ordering materials. And since I had access to my lab, I started getting uh, started looking around, and and as I started messing more with the three D printers and trying to print these um, these face shields, and sort of realizing some of the complications that happen from it, like a a print job fails or um, they take a while. I mean, the original design mm-hmm. I was messing with was the Prusa um, shield, and it was about a three-hour print. Um, and if my printers weren't all tuned well, I would have them fail and have to restart them or whatever it was. So mm-hmm. um, I think just out of curiosity, I started wondering if it was possible to use um, the laser cutters. The, the you know, it's a it's a completely different tool. There's a there's a, a middle ground of where you can accomplish some of the same tasks using a 3D printer or laser cutter, but they, they, they tend to solve different, usually solve different problems. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, how do we, how do we utilize these things because of how, because of their speed to possibly make a, um, a face shield, but it would have to be out of one material and have to be out of material that was um, only, that was laserable. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, like, so we couldn't use PVC or something like that. And uh, so I threw a tweet out and I just said, has anybody thought about a, a flat pack a laser cutable flat pack shield. And I didn't, I don't even think I got like a couple likes on it or I didn't get much back on it, but I, um, mm-hmm. that's when I started thinking about how we could use, how I could design something that would be used on there. And while I was waiting for some of the resources to arrive for, um, into my lab, uh, to be able, like filament and other things to be able to make these other shields that we were going to make. Um, I started prototyping and iterating this, this particular design. And very early on in the stage, um, I got connected, I start well early on in the in this process. I got hooked up with Jay Margulis from uh, from DePaul's IRL lab, uh, and I'm on the advisory board for them. So it's DePaul's makerspace um, system, and Jay runs it. And we started just mm-hmm. talking about I don't even remember just random stuff, and um, very quickly I became sort of a, a participant in this in this greater PPE effort um, happening 
in the Chicagoland area and spreading out to more of Illinois. Um, we kept calling it the DePaul effort. Uh, DePaul was the source of the funding, or basically was pulling in the funding through their 501c3 so people could donate um, in a tax deductible fashion. And then it could also give us a way to bring funds in and then um, use our discretion to spend that money on, on resources. So as I said, it's like a three-pronged effort. So it's really the, the flat pack, um, Chicago public schools, and then this DePaul effort. And at the same time, the DePaul effort started growing and growing and growing. And we renamed it the Illinois PPE Network because we had multiple organizations jumping on board. We had Chicago public schools in a sense through me, um, but we had uh, Museum of Science and Industry becoming involved and Chicago public libraries becoming involved and, um, and soon other institutions. Um, so we wanted to rebrand it for something that wasn't specifically DePaul focused, even though um, the finances were still running through through it. Mm-hmm. Um, DePaul jumped on board because it aligned with their mission um, and what, their, what they want to do as an, as an institution. So um, as you fast forward a little bit, um, through the Illinois PPE network, I got connected with a doctor um, or a couple doctors at University of Chicago Hospitals, and um, they were willing to to try out my my shield and see how it would work. So this flat pack shield that I designed. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in the initial stages, the flat pack face shield could be laser cut in about a minute and 45 seconds. Um, it's a single sourced material, so you don't have to get elastic and 3D printed filament and transparencies and the labor of going through multiple people and the time of waiting for a 3D print job to successfully complete and all that stuff. You basically put a sheet of PP, PT, PETG in a laser cutter uh, cut it in a minute, 45 seconds. You can take it out and send it. It's it's ready to go, and it's just, and it's a single material flat pack that kind of tears apart. So I had my first version. Talked to um, Dr. Alban at, um, who's our resident at uh, University of Chicago Hospital. This guy was just amazing and so nice, and um, came by my house and picked up a few copies of my first version and brought it back, and then that mm-hmm. night got back to me with some feedback and he was getting it out to other doctors. All in all, it ends up being somewhere in the area of 15 to 20 doctors that were messing with the shield. And in a very, very fast paced iterative cycle, he would tell me, can, do you think you can do this? I'm like, yeah, 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 I can do that. And uh, what about this? Sure, sure, I can do that. And then I, I just got excited about it and would make these changes very quickly. And within roughly a, a week's time, we went from version one to version eight that was basically dubbed sort of the final, the final version. And, mm-hmm. um, it made a lot of, you know, it went through a lot of changes. Um, it was fascinating to be part of this iteration, this iterative process, it's sort of like eating my own dog food for what I try and teach my students all the time. Um, I am not by any stretch of imagination, a professional designer. I do not have experience being a professional designer. I iterate a lot personally and I iterate with my students, but this is the first, this was a sort of felt like a much bigger deal. Um, mm-hmm. It was very exciting to be a part of it for all the wrong reasons. Um, it's like sad that it was happening, but it was um, invigorating and exciting and um, wonderful to work with people and feeling like I had some way of helping them somehow. Um, sure. So even one of the doctors that ended up testing my shield out and posted about it on Twitter, it turns out, and this is totally uh, like uh, coincidental, is one, of my, is one of my old students. Oh, that's uh, hilarious. Yeah, so Dr. Rojek, um, Alex Rojek, she, and she was, uh, she like posted it and posted pictures of her, a little video of it. So it was, it was a really 
um, meaningful thing to have happen. So sure. the the um, and I know this is a long story, but so in the 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 there's a unfortunate side, and that's that CPS basically Chicago Public Schools. Um, my I was trying. We were disagreeing somewhat on how to implement logistically our involvement. And then I was trying to get Chicago Public Schools to jump on board the Illinois PP network to be a part of that so that we can sort of help more people together. And um, the the legal team and Chicago Public Schools um, decided to, to pull the plug and jump ship on it. So uh, they sort of reclaimed all the resources and um, I was no longer able to go back into the lab to work at all or use any of any of their equipment. So, but the good damage was done. I mean, I was already very active and working very hard within the Illinois PPE network. And um, through that group, we've been able to push out about 6,500 shields a day um, through a network of makers and couriers and volunteers, 100% volunteer network um, spreading uh, across the whole state of Illinois. So that's sort of an intro. <laughs> So, so, I mean, you know, you went through the rapid prototyping phase with the doctors and getting like kind of that daily feedback from them and going through your iterations, but you guys have scaled it up quite a bit. I mean, yeah. you know, it kind of goes, goes from you to Jay at DePaul, then you guys kind of build this consortium, rebrand to Illinois PPE network. Uh -huh. um, and then, you know, this has gone from rapid prototyping tools to being die cut, correct? Yep. So, so you guys were able, so how did that happen? And, and what has that changed uh, as far as production goes? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, we, as this thing started to get produced more, what we're looking at in the Illinois PP network is if this flat pack works um, as well as we are anticipating it to work by the feedback that we've gotten from people on the front lines using it. Um, and it has applications just like any face shield, but it has um, very quick applications that, that make it, that give it some advantages like being a single material, being able to be made really quickly, being able to be shipped in bulk, um, very small in a very small shipment, like a box of a hundred of them is pretty small because they're all flat when they ship. Um, mm -hmm. Being able to mass sterilize them, so dipping them all in a solution and sterilizing them, that kind of stuff seemed like it had an advantage worth following over the uh, over the 3D printing um, angle. And so the idea wasn't like to put 3D printers out of business or 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 put any negative any shade on anybody doing this stuff that we're everybody's doing what they can with what we have to make things to make things better and there's an amazing amount of work from all these people but part of the idea is let's say we can we can solve that problem or at least solve a good part of that problem in a different way and then we can use all of this this, this network of people and these resources to make other things like what are the other things that we need what's the next thing what happens when face shields aren't needed anymore and we have widget whatever the widget is that, that makers and this massive network of distribution and couriering and donations could be put to use for. So um, we looked at, could, could we mass produce these? And uh, through some conversations with people at Workshop 88, um, this guy Tom there, who was really helpful and um, started sending things out to uh, ASME, I think, um, got connected with um, a gentleman named JC uh, Marovich, whose family owns um, uh, tri-dye, I think a triangle dyes and supplies, so they call it tri-dye. Um, mm -hmm. 
And JC's daughter is a nurse and he wanted to help out and he volunteered to make a die for free, like a steel, a steel roll die. Um, I knew nothing about this stuff. So it's been pretty interesting. I still really don't feel like I know a ton about it, but I get the general process now. And he made, um, through his company in Tridye in, in Batavia, made this die. And then he's connected to a manufacturer called Great Northern, which is in Minnesota. And Great Northern volunteered all of their manufacturing production time for free to make this wow. stuff. So we found um, a, a wonderful donor to buy our first batch of PETG, which has been very hard to source, but we were able to source about 480 four by eight sheets. Um, and that turns into 8,000 um, stamped shields. So the flat pack can be stamped. So when I was feeling like, man, a minute, a minute and 45 seconds is pretty quick. Um, stamping them out puts that to shame so they um they can make uh just under about two thousand per hour mm -hmm. uh and so this moved forward very quickly and um, i just got an email i think this morning they were all made yesterday so they stamped them all out yesterday um, they made a custom box that can fit 50 of them and they're looking at next steps to get them back to chicago and then we're going to deliver this stuff uh, most likely, most of it will go directly to the United Center, which is a staging ground for PPE for uh, efforts in the city of Chicago. So it, we don't we don't necessarily need to bring 8,000 of them into our network and then figure out how to distri distribute them when we can get them to a, a more major hub that can mm -hmm. use its own uh, distribution network. So, um, so that's kind of where we're at with it. The um, uh, we're in the process of buying a lot more PETG, and we're looking at if we have leads that seem to pan out about spending a, a, a fairly large amount of this donor's money, uh, not this one donor, but all these people that have been donating about spending this money straight on plastic, shipping it out to the manufacturer and having these things made in, in, uh, in large numbers, um, even more than 8,000. And so we're looking at in the Illinois PP network, what do we do now? Not what do we do now? Nobody's been sitting around, but there are a variety of other things that we've been um, working on and prototyping uh, mm -hmm. uh, Dan, Dan Meyer, um, over at MSI, um, and their fab labs made a really, really cool, um, basically th version of the 3d printed bracket, um, that's, mm -hmm. that's shrunk down. Um, it's squeezed together so it can be made on smaller print beds and then mm -hmm. made a template and you basically just heat it up or use it and use a jig and you just, uh, heat it up for a little bit in the oven and then you, and you can do a bunch at a time and then widen it to that template. And then it, mm. and then it hardens again at that size. So it, it basically activated a lot of machines that weren't able to be activated because they weren't big enough to fit something like this particular piece. Um, we're looking at laser cutting uh, a particular material called Halyard 600, which looks like it could have um, filtration capabilities of uh, like an N95 kind of mask. It's mm -hmm. it's a it's a wrap used in in operating rooms for equipment, and it's autoclavable, so it's gas permeable, but not pathogen permeable. And so mm -hmm. uh, you can laser cut it and make masks out of it. And we're looking at that. We're looking at other implementations of masks, other implementations of tools that can help people. And so we've got this like, massive network activated and we're just trying to see what's the next thing that we can do or what kinds of things can we work on um, to help with this greater, you know, this greater effort. Sure. So what, I mean, you know, um, obviously you kind of have moved beyond, I mean, I can, I can understand CPS's, you know, reticence, you know, where there's, they probably feel like they're s certifying the, um, 
quality and safety of these masks if they're involved or they're concerned about your safety if you're going into the lab and prototyping, but you guys have moved beyond CPS and you don't really need to kind of wade through their bureaucracy, but yeah. what's, what's, what, what do you need now? I mean, what is, uh, donations obviously, mm -hmm. but what other resources will help you guys um, for all the listeners out there? Um, so uh, connections to PETG is, is great. This has been a very hard material to source. We're finding, um, we're finding it in a variety of prices and a variety of lead times, anywhere from mm. the end of the, the, the end of the month to May, June in timing. So, um, you know, a lot, kind of a, a fair amount of variation there and then variation in pricing, everything from $14 for a four by eight sheet up to $80 a four by eight sheet. So, you know, there's, there's price gouging that happens with this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and nobody's trying to um, keep a company from staying afloat and making money. Uh, so selling it at a reasonable price is obviously fine. Um, these companies are trying to still keep, keep afloat a and then also prepare for what happens when um, a peak in PETG distribution drops off when, when it's not needed anymore and how do they prepare for that. And also the manufacturers of these materials are cranking their price up. So these distributors need to crank up the price um, a little bit to meet what the manufacturers are doing. So there's, there's a lot of stuff at play. Um, what's been cool about the, uh, I don't want to side, sidetrack from what your question was. No, go ahead. Um, yeah. One thing that's been cool about the shield and that I published it for, for free because um, the goal was for anybody to be able to use it and, and make it help as many people as possible. So there's been a lot of, I've tried to publish it or like um, get it out there as much as possible. I had one manufacturer say, well, what happens if people in my shop see it and then they start making it for people around here? Is that a problem? And I said, no, that's like, that's excellent. Yeah, please that's, do. Um, if, if they're making them and then selling them for $30 a piece, that's going to be a problem. But, um, but no, please, no, go take it and make it. Um, I just spoke, with a couple that was having trouble with part of the design and they hunted me down online and found, emailed me and said they made 800 of them out in Spokane, Washington, but do I have any suggestions? And I wrote back right away and I said, can you zoom right now? Can you have a call right now? And they're like, sure. And I talked to them for like an hour last night. I've never mm -hmm. met them before, but we talked for a while about tweaks they had done to the design and what problems they were happening. And if I would be able to help in any way. And, um, I know that they've been made, hundreds have been made at least in Austria. I know they've been made in Canada. I know they've been made all over the U.S. I know some people that have made a bunch in um, in Texas that are selling them at cost. So they're making them and selling them for $2, which is their cost. So they're not making any profit on them, but they're making them for local, um, local institutions. So we've talked about how these things can apply in Chicago also to uh, homeless shelters, uh, substance use disorder centers, uh, assisted living facilities, um, like these sort of secondary institutions that aren't frontline healthcare workers, but people that might be able to still um, still uh, be protected by it. So, um, to, so to come back to your question, what what do, what do we need um, at this point? Our our site is www.illinoispe.org has really three three entrance points in it or once you get there you can go through three three channels one is i need ppe and so if you are an institution that needs ppe what do we need we need you to tell us that you need ppe so that we can get it to you and it's free so mm -hmm. if you are 
um, a frontline healthcare worker. It could be a fire department. We've done fire departments and then all kinds of institutions. Um, if you need it, please let us know and we will do everything we can to get you some. Um, the second one is uh, I can make PPE. So if you are um, somebody that has um, sewing capabilities or you have a 3D printer or laser cutter or um, want to get involved in some way, uh, we need more people. We always can use more people like helping in a, in a, mm -hmm. a large distributed network like this. So uh, you can sign up on there and offer your help. And what we do with the, with the uh, donations that we get are um, we send out through our courier network, we send out materials and supplies. So it won't cost you anything. We will get you 3D printer filament. We will get you plastic. We will get you material to sew. We will get you whatever you need. Um, and we pay for it through these kind of donations from people. And then we have couriers that pick that up. Um, so we've worked into it. We've worked it into basically a node, like a, a mesh network, where there are nodes that can that um, handle uh, distributing materials and collecting finished products from other um, like people in there that that work with their node. And then mm -hmm. uh, couriers can go and pick up from that node as well. So in this distributed network, if a if a node goes down, we can take the uh, whoever was working with that node and redistribute the load to another node. So it's just kind of like how, how any other node-based network would work. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's the second the second channel, and that is um, I can help make stuff. And then the third one is um, donations. So I would like mm -hmm. to donate, and um, it's a pretty awesome thing to donate to for a couple reasons. One is I can tell you, and, and the money goes through a legitimate channel. It's going through DePaul's 501c3. It's tax deductible, so that's great. Um, it is uh, 100%. Every single penny of that goes directly to this effort. And really the only thing, almost all of it goes towards materials to be able to fabricate this stuff. So um, nobody's getting paid. We're not getting paid on the organizing committee. None of the makers are getting paid. Um, couriers, are, it's 100% volunteer effort and 100% of that money. DePaul's not taking a little off the top. Nobody's taking a little bit here and there. There's no fees. It's just um, strictly donations. So you know that your money is going to something um, meaningful uh, right away. And what's been awesome is that that understanding from some people has allowed us to bring in some larger donations. Um, uh, we had um, somebody donate uh, $10,000 the other day. Um, we had a donation from a, a single couple for 8,000 to get that those those first um, 8,000 shields produced in Minnesota. Um, we've gotten a couple grants uh, successfully pulled in. Um, and so we do have money um, coming in, but we need more. And so what we're doing right now is we're looking at how much of our overall account can we spend on a giant order of PETG and then have it shipped to this manufacturer in Minnesota um, and make sure that we leave enough resources to be able to handle these other um, like, you know, items that we're looking at making. We sure. don't want to complete everything, right? But um, but we also it's so hard to get that we want to make sure that we buy enough of it. Um, and and in in reality, I mean, I almost think of it as like a good problem to have. What happens if you have too much PP? Well, then we've won, right? In, in that sense, so I don't think that's going to happen. And and I would even say the worst case scenario is not that it's not going to sit in a warehouse here as long as the federal government government doesn't steal it from us. 
then we can get it off to another state or maybe somewhere else that needs it. There's always people that need it. There's always another level of institution that needs protection. It could be mm-hmm. food service workers. It could be um, all the people out giving lunches to students every day through Chicago public schools. There's yeah. lots of people that need to be protected. So. So you see this, I mean, it's not just for medical professionals at the front lines. I mean, this could be September, October, November. I mean, this could be into 2021 when, when, like you said, some of these people maybe that we think of in secondary or tertiary tiers, they're still being exposed and they still need to protect themselves and the people they're interacting with. But, you know, like you said, the cafeteria workers, I mean, there are all kinds of secondary and tertiary people that could really benefit from having these face shields. Yep. That's exactly how we talk about it. I mean, that's the, stole the words right out of my mouth. So, um, yeah, the secondary and tertiary institutions and organizations need uh, need this stuff. And we were looking at how to get it to them as well, and that, and that is happening. Um, like I said, like homeless shelters, substance use disorder centers, all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. So um, uh, jail, like so the like the like jails in Chicago or Cook County Jail, there's a massive outbreak um, at, at Cook County Jail. We um, there was a, an outbreak at Gateway, which is a substance use disorder center. And we immediately diverted a bunch of our, uh, a bunch of shields over to them. People need this stuff. Um, and uh, our federal government has completely failed us in this, on this front. So um, it's um, inspiring and, and motivating, I guess, in some ways to see people jump to, to jump to help. The, the, the whole, like, I mean, people everywhere. I mean, the one I'm embedded with happens to be this sort of DIY, DIY maker community. Mm-hmm. But people in all kinds of communities everywhere are are jumping to help, and um, I, I think about it sometimes like you know fifty years, we put a person on the moon fifty years ago, but we can't keep healthcare workers safe right now, like with a piece of plastic on their head. Yeah. So it's it's fa- it's terrible and fascinating, but terrible. Absolutely. So I mean, so you spoke of nodes, and I'm thinking like you know, kind of in Illinois, a node of nodes in Illinois, but do you find that there's these other networks in other states and other institutions? Yeah. Are you guys starting to connect with them and make a bigger mesh, mesh network? That's a, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm not sure if you realize how well-timed that question is, uh, <laughs> but um, the, uh, so uh, Dale Doherty at, at Make, um, the, the founder and president of Make, of, uh, Make um, just published a five-part series yesterday, I think, on, uh, on, what he calls plan C mm-hmm. uh, and it's the Chicago shield. And so he, he's talking about what we what, based overall, the efforts of what we're doing in Chicago, largely about the Illinois PPE network. Um, and uh, they're also hosting a, um, a national conversation, like, I don't know for a better use of a term, but like maybe like a webinar, but there's a, like a call in tonight, um, mm-hmm. at 6 p.m. Central Time, so 7 p.m. Standard, or uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. And uh, they're hosting it. I'm on the panel with the rest of the organization team from Illinois PPE Network. And the whole idea behind this call is, um, here's what we're doing in Illinois, and it's working. Um, please copy and paste it if you'd like. It is free. We'll answer questions. We're trying to help anybody else, anywhere else, take our model and use it, tweak it, remix it, whatever, don't use it. But the idea is like, it's, it seems to be working for us. And when I talk to people in other places around the country, like, like I did in Spokane yesterday, um, I hear there's just lots of different implementations, but a lot, um, I see 
just because it's a grassroots type thing, I just see it's you know fragmented in a lot of places or people are helping in these pockets, but they don't realize they haven't yet made it to the point where if they got together and had some sort of model in place, some sort of organizational model in place that they can, um, that they can possibly, you know, expand or, or, or do more. So, um, we've talked about making a handbook. I don't know what we can do and how much time, but if we had sort of some sort of like handbook that we could put out and say, um, take it and use it if it works. And if not, that's fine too. The only that, that we've moved to our back end has become Airtable, and that, that mm-hmm. just kind of became a thing. A bunch of us had never heard of it. I never really, I never heard of it. I saw it here and there, but I never really knew what Airtable was. Mm-hmm. But, um, but now Airtable is where we run sort of everything through and keep track of our nodes and our makers and, um, uh, for people like request, you know, request PPE and, all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's helped out a lot. And we just share that out with anybody that wants to see it. So this is really growing into like an open source framework that you guys are hoping people in need and groups in need can just take this, deploy it. If they see improvements since it's open source, they can tweak it, change it, um, evolve this face shield and all the different types of PPE um, as they see fit because of the way you guys really decided at the beginning, not to close this, to keep it open. Um, for a lot of reasons, but I mean, not the least of which is that allows more innovation um, as opposed to like closed source projects. Yeah, every single thing is open. And um, it's actually, you know, I've, I've learned so much um, uh, stuff and I'm still learning a lot about this, but I started thinking the other day, well, I don't, I don't, I don't want my, I want my design to be free and I want it to be out there and open, um, but I don't want someone to take it and then start price gouging with it or mm-hmm. charging a bunch of money for it. Like that doesn't feel like it. That's not the reason why I gave it out for free. I didn't give it out for free. So somebody could go take the idea and profit off of it. Right. Sure. So I started looking at and asking friends and, um, some people actually that we know, like some, some, um, uh, common friends, uh, that are attorneys. What, what mm-hmm. do like, what can I do about this? And I got pointed to, there's a um, common creative commons license that's specifically COVID-19 related. Oh, okay. I, I believe what it says is like, you can use it um, for free for now. And that, and you, um, that protection on using it for free lasts until a year after the WHO declares the pandemic to be done mm. or over. And um, so, cause what I was thinking is, Hey, Maybe not now for sure, but there's going to be a time when this is over. And at that time, maybe I do want to take the design and, you know, not go price gouge with it, but maybe I want to turn it into a viable product or maybe it want, maybe there's a way um, to make it part of my regular business um, and, and sell it at a, you know, at a normal price or something like that. But I want, I want to be the one that makes the decision on that and not have it sort sort of stolen beforehand. Okay. So, um, so I guess for listeners, one thing I would, I would say is please don't steal it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not in that way, at least. So I'm, I went and filled out the entire starting with a copyright on it and started to fill it out. And then, um, uh, my computer crashed and I found out very quickly that, uh, their site, which seems to be built in the 1920s, uh, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't save as you work your way along. <laughs> so oh, I, gotta yeah. go, I gotta go fill it out, out again, but, oh my God. Um, that's- but yeah, so that's kind of like, um, a potential trajectory for it. I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of it right now as like, I just wanted to get out there and be able to um, help people. And so 
So by all means, t take it. The files are all up and available and free, and you can take it and remix it and do whatever you want with it. Sure. So, I mean, while you're doing all this, you're also a teacher. So how are your students doing? Kind of turn into a more personal note. Um, how are they adapting to all of this? I mean, when you have different socioeconomic levels, different, um, you know, kinds of family structures, I mean, this affects everyone differently. So how are you and your students doing? Um, everything from great to terrible. So mm -hmm. um, this has been very, uh, very hard. Um, I, I really miss seeing my students every day. And um, we had a little a lull of like when we weren't able to do any kind of virtual stuff at all. And, and I was fighting pretty hard to get um, to do what I could to help get stuff, something like Google Meet um, available for teachers and students to use. Um, and then when that was finally allowed, it was, I had this like at least a small sense of relief where I, I was able to like see some of my students again and, and talk to them and talk about what we normally talk about. And there's, you know, every class that you have as a teacher has a community. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's its own community. I mean, my, we see each other every day. I mean, there's like 30 kids in a room with me. I see them every single day of the school year and you build up a community and a personality for the class and all kinds of stuff. And I really missed that. Um, and I had a feeling that although teenagers might say it as much, I knew that, and I knew some of them did say it, um, that they miss it too. You know, they, that the sort of structure and the, and the consistency of being able to see your teachers every day. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been really hard as far as what my students are experiencing. It's all over the place. Everything from um, kids that are doing just fine and um, getting their work done and busting their butts to kids that are just fine and not motivated and are not mm -hmm. doing any of their schoolwork. Um, to students that are uh, that are have jobs that are um, essential that have like essential jobs, um, mm -hmm. that whether they're providing for their family or for themselves to get ready for whatever else they're doing. I've got a, a number of students working full time. Um, we've got students whose parents were laid off or lost their jobs, but the kids still have their jobs. We've got um, plenty of kids that are now the um, child care provider in their mm -hmm. household because their parents are working and the kids can't go to daycare or whatever it is, but they're like older siblings. I, I deal with high school students, so they're old enough to care um, for younger kids. And a lot of them are doing that. I've been on video calls for class with students. One of my students was holding a baby the whole time, our, our little, little, little sister. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's, it's difficult. It, you can't expect all these kids to be available to, do the things at the right times when they're supposed to do them. So some kids can, but some kids definitely can't. And it's interesting because people are quick to, I don't know, there's a lot of people are quick to, to either not trash teachers, but make all kinds of assumptions about what teachers experience and, and whether they're lazy or they do this or they're collecting a paycheck. And it's, it's really, really toxic. And it, um, probably one of the hardest things about being a teacher has been public, public discourse on, on, on teachers in general, but mm -hmm. you know, I got a buddy in my department who um, has a two-year-old, a one-year-old, his wife got sick and his wife works in healthcare. Mm -hmm. So for quite a while, he was single parenting a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And so asking somebody like that to find a way to, 
teach during the day at specific times is very difficult. I mean, I, I, I'm in a different position. I have old teenagers, older teenagers. Mm-hmm. So it's different. I can, I can schedule that, but he can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, there's so many variables at play and people are very quick to make assumptions about what I'm going to just stick with Chicago public schools. So what 25,000 people are doing mm-hmm. teachers are this, or teachers don't do that or teachers do this. And, some teachers are doing things and some teachers aren't doing things. And there's some fantastic ones and there's some not so fantastic ones. And it's, you're talking about a community of 25,000 people that have very different lives and very different situations. Right. So -hmm. it's like making an assumption about all the students. Some of my, my students are very different, come from all kinds of walks of life, backgrounds, experiences, things going on at home, homeless kids, super wealthy kids, kids that drive more expensive cars. I'll ever see my life to school kids that don't have a place to go at home. I've got kids that work 40 hours a week during the regular school year. So we're in class full-time in high school and also working 40 hours a week. It is all over the place. So making an assumption about students or about teachers is, is I think, short-sighted and, and, and dangerous. And uh, and when there's no shortage of keyboard warriors right now with everybody being home on their computers. Um, so... So my experience as a teacher is it's, it's good to be back um, doing some sort of instruction, um, but it's very, it's hard. Um, I've been recording, I've been doing Google Meets. I record every one of my classes and then I post it on Google Classroom so that students that have um, device access can, if they can't be there because they're preoccupied with something else, then they can watch the whole class later. Maybe it'll help them, maybe mm-hmm. it won't. Um, and I've just been trying to keep with that consistency and the traditions that I had in my classes that I do. I've been sticking with those as much as possible. I do Space Mondays still. Space Mondays for me, it's been for years. I talk mm-hmm. about a space fact or about space tra- I'm fascinated in, in I love, you know this about me, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just like really into space and space travel. I wish I was an astronaut. But um, so I, I give like a tidbit or some interesting thing about, about space every Monday. And I've been doing that even since school, the school buildings were closed. Um, for, uh, yeah, a friend of mine, Chell Lindgren, he's a, a current astronaut. Um, he, I asked him, I was like, would you do a Space Monday video for my kids? And he was like, yeah, that would be awesome. And so he made a really, really cool video just for my students about his invention on how to brew coffee in space. And um, wow. yeah, and so I got to get that out to the kids and they really liked that. So just trying to do whatever we can to keep keep some sort of like normalcy and tradition and um, consistency. But also I know that a lot of kids aren't, aren't able to make it or, or just don't want to make it. Um, Their grades can't go down technically. So Mm -hmm. I had a kid email me. He's like, I like my grade and I'm fine and I need to save money for college. So I'm not coming to class. And I didn't really know what to say other than I miss you and let me know if you need any help. And I, I kind of get it. I kind of understand where he's coming from. Totally. Well, you know, on behalf of uh, humanity, I guess, I mean, I really want to say thank you to all of you guys and the Illinois PPE Network for what you're doing. And I uh, really appreciate you taking the time once again to be on the podcast. And uh, this is really just fascinating to hear about all of this. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. And um, I know I'm, a, I'm not a man of few words. So um, kudos to <laughs> subjecting yourself to me talking for this long. <laughs> oh, happy to do it, man. And I'll put all of the uh, links for the Illinois PPE network. I'll put all of that in the show notes so people can reach out, uh, donate, get involved in any way they can. 
Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, thank you. There's yeah, there's a link specifically to the the flat pack if they want to check that out, and mm -hmm. um, you can get you can get to both through both. So IllinoisPP.org and or or my uh, the flat pack link. But yeah, um, thanks for all you're doing, man, and thanks for getting this out, and for all the listeners out there. If uh, anybody wants to help, um, we can always use more people. So um, or donate or whatever it is. So, but I really appreciate your time. All hands on deck, right? We need everybody. All hands on deck, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Depth and Light Podcast. I'd like to express my gratitude to those out there creating PPE and for those who have sat down and talked to us. If you have show ideas, please reach out to us at info at depthandlight.com. 